0: Parables with Power that's been our series. Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Luke chapter 18. Recently, after 32 consecutive victories, Jeopardy champion James Holzhauer's record-breaking winning streak came to an end. It captured the national attention his ability to uh, find uh, trivia answers and answer correctly His ability to hit the button and his uh, way of uh, gamemanship netted him more than $2 million in prize money. He didn't win the most consecutive victories, but it was certainly amazing. Now, for a few moments, I want to take that little thought, and let's do a a fictitious Jeopardy board. We have up there, uh, contesting against one another, the Pharisee. And a publican, a tax collector. Let's imagine the scene. The board comes up, the daily double turns over. The answer, if you know anything about Jeopardy, they don't give the question, they give the answer. And then you have to answer by way of a question. So the answer comes over, the double, daily double. Everyone's excited. This is a big wager. When it turns over, it says, be a good person. Ha! As a, as a religious Pharisee, you know the answer, and so you hit the button. I know that answer. Be a good person. The question, what is the way to heaven? The answer, be a good person. And that's because I'm a Pharisee. That's, I know that's correct, and I say that's what it is. Uh, Alex Trebek Spiritually speaking, winces, oh, I am sorry, Mr. Pharisee, that is the wrong answer. No, but the publican says, I know the way to question that, and that is, uh, what is a good person? No, that is the, the way to heaven is by the grace of God. And that's what we're facing here this morning, two different men, two different Prayers, two differing results. Either man could have been saved, but only one was. There was one right answer, and the publican surprisingly got it, and the religious person didn't. And that's the story. This is one of the most dramatic and powerful statements in all of Scripture by the mouth of Jesus Himself on what it means to have the blood atonement. And so let's all bow our heads forward to prayer, if you would, please. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning. And I thank you, Lord, for this amazing church. Lord, for these 20 years on this campus, Lord, we have watched you do miracle after miracle. And now, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would collect our thoughts together for the greatest miracle of all, salvation by grace through faith. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Theologically speaking, this particular parable is the most far-reaching of all the parables that Jesus told. Because this is where the rubber really meets the road. The implications that Jesus brings forth are nothing short of radical and at the same time complex and amazingly simple. Now, our Lord Jesus, as you know, often blew people away with his truth because his truth was the genuine truth, but it was part of his upside down kingdom that often didn't make sense to humans. It was the reverse of pretty much every culture, but especially the Jewish culture. The Jewish culture tragically had come to believe if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. And that concept just pretty much uh, stuck in everybody's mind. When Jesus looked at them and told them that actually you can be a very, very, very bad person, pray one prayer And then you'll spend eternity in heaven. They were like, What? And then he said, You can be a very good, good, good person and not pray correctly and spend eternity away from God. I'm sure when he gave that little thought, they were just unbelievably shocked. How is it possible that a person with such an upstanding character and such an outwardly good person could not go to heaven? And how is it possible for this? traitor, this thief, this extortioner, this this loser kind of a guy, how is it possible for him to actually go to heaven? Now let's get the context. Remember now we talked about the context of the beginning of chapter 18 last week. You've got to go back to chapter 17. Jesus is talking about the second coming of Christ. That one day and not many days from now, maybe a week, maybe a month. A, a day with the Lord is like a thousand thousand years to us, but it's coming quickly. The Lord is coming, and when he comes he's going to establish an earthly kingdom, an earthly rule of righteousness. And then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And so he is establishing the topic here, the second coming, being ready. And so basically Jesus is looking at him and saying, "Are you ready? Hey religious people, are you ready?" Hey, sinful people, are you ready? Hey, everybody, are you ready? And with that in mind, he then tells this wonderful story, a parable. Remember now, a parable is an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. There are four distinct parts to this uh, brief passage here, but let's look at them together. I think they're going to be a eye-opening to you as they were to me. Verse number nine, first of all, we find the pastor's synopsis. Now, the word pastor, of course, is the word for shepherd, and Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the one telling this, so he's our good pastor here. Verse 9, let's all say verse 9 together, if you would. Ready, begin. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And so Jesus starts off with his target audience. Look at the first part of verse number 9. He says... He spoke this parable unto certain, unto certain, literally in the Greek language, that is whosoever ones, the whosoever ones. It's a very comprehensive word. It means anybody. It means everybody. Anybody who trusts in themselves that they're good enough to get to heaven, that's who I'm talking to. But then he, in particular, gives uh, a little color of everyday life in Israel. And he lets them know that religion alone is not going to be the way to get to heaven. You know, there are many people today that decry religion and say, that's why we're a secularist or that's why I'm an atheist. But I would tell you that even after 20 centuries, nobody really has changed much. And I will very clearly say that American liberalism is a religion. It's just a secular religion. It has its own sacred texts. It has its own taboos. It has its own crusades and inquisitions. And of course, the bottom line is political correctness. And so when people tell you, I'm a secularist, I'm not a religious person, just always know in your mind, secularism is absolutely a religion. It's just a religion of the human mind. But during the life of Christ, religion was very much a part of the Israel mindset, formal religion. And so uh, these Pharisees, and boy, if you've ever seen uh, representations of them, uh, pictures of them, boy, they wore all kinds of religious regalia, and boy, they certainly looked very religious. And it dominated life in Israel. They basically believed this, that if you were uh, were a good person, then you could go to heaven. And uh, heaven was that place where the kingdom of God maybe is what they would think more likely. But you know the the funny thing and the crazy thing, and really 2,000 years have passed since this passage was uh, written at least given to us. The Word of God is eternal in the heavens, so it was actually before they ever was written down. But written down, it's, we've had it in our hands for about 2,000 years. And yet, despite all of that, it's never changed. Go to the average person on the street here in Stockton or Lodi or any place and ask them, how could a person get to God? If they believed in God, how could a person get to their heaven if you were some other religion you might say how can you you know come to nirvana or how could you come to the celestial city or you know how can you have eternal life uh, in your spiritual form or whatever you know and people have all these crazy thinking but the fact is almost everybody will say the same concept that basically you have to be a good person that's the way to get to your heaven uh, you know if you were a buddhist you might say you might have to You know, have more good than bad. And if you were in one religion, you'd say, well, there's a little bit of bad and the good, and a little bit of good and the bad. And, you know, there's yin and yang, and there's all these things. So, but everybody basically has this concept good and bad, uh, righteousness and evil. And that's what uh, Jesus faced then. And notice what it says He says very clearly, people that trust in themselves, that they are righteous. And most of us have this concept I don't do these things and then I do these things. I don't do these things so I probably if you weigh all my stuff you know I'm and I do these things I probably earn my way to heaven. I remember I used to play I was an avid tennis player for 30 years and then I had that ankle surgery now I've been playing golf but for 30 years I played tennis with just Dozens and dozens of different people. And you have an hour or so or two hours to talk with them here and there. And I remember this one guy, he always would tell me the same thing. He, he was a jokester. And boy, he loved to always say something funny and sometimes off color. And, um, uh, and he told me, he said, Pastor, the way I think is this. He said, I just feel like when I get to, uh, before God, God's going to let me into heaven because I made people laugh. And I said, Really? I said, Well,. I'm afraid that's not going to work. And I called him my name. I said, That's just not what God, that's not the way God works. And he really didn't have time to listen to the rest of my speech, but over the years, I definitely gave it to him. But you know, there is a true standard, and the standard is not by comparing ourselves to other people. It's not how much I made people laugh or didn't laugh, but that's what this man was doing. He was saying, I have been a holy person. But his standard wasn't God, his standard wasn't true perfection. His standard was just other people. And here's the bottom line from Scripture. The book of Leviticus says it very clearly, be holy as I am holy. So the standard is this, be holy. (laughs) Well, we'd say, now, wait a second. How is it possible to be holy? Well, actually, that's what we're going to be talking about, the balance of this sermon. And so the Pharisee claimed for himself that he was holy, at least holy enough to get to heaven. By what he could see, he was holy enough. He was definitely holier than this uh, old tax collector, this publican as they called him. But he thought himself to be holy enough to get to heaven. The sad truth was that the average person there in Israel was buying it. I mean, they they just looked like they must be holy because look at them, (laughs) the way they acted, the way they talked, the things they did. They got to be holy. It's been said that pride is the only disease. Spiritual pride is the only disease disease known to man that makes everyone sick, except for the one who has it. <laughs> they make other people sick, but themselves, you know, it doesn't bother them. Maybe you have ever tasted durian fruit. I have. There in Southeast Asia, Thailand, other parts of Asia, it is hugely popular. Maybe you've been to a grocery store and see these uh, crazy looking fruit laying there. Well, durian fruit is a delicacy in many parts of the world. They love it, hugely popular, and they love the taste. I really wasn't a big fan of it. But there is one distinct characteristic about durian fruit, and those of you who know anything about it, you know what I'm about ready to say. It absolutely stinks. It stinks like rotten eggs. It stinks like old shoes. I mean, Just think of the most nasty, old-smelling stuff, and when you cut it open, it just permeates the room. I mean, so much so that many places have actual rules that they don't allow durian fruit to be cut and open. I read uh, the other day about this one office that had to be evacuated in one part of Asia, and uh, because they thought there was a natural gas leak, and so they they had to, they took everybody out of the office, searched around for the gas leak, only to find that someone had put durian fruit shell in the waste paper basket. <laughs> You know, I thought about that, that that's kind of like this old Pharisee eating that durian fruit, loving it to the hill. The only thing was, it was stinking everybody else up. And that's kind of how we are. We got the idea, I'm holy. And we think, boy, God must be happy. You no, know, God thinks it stinks and so does everybody else. But, he are, but we ourselves, we're as happy as we can be just eating our little durian fruit, you know, and that's me. And that's what this fellow was like. Jesus was saying, this guy is so happy being righteous. The only deal is he's not truly righteous because the standard is God. The standard is scripture. And so first of all, the pastor's synopsis, Pastor Jesus, the good shepherd, he gives us a little overview of where he's going, verse number nine. Now, second of all, we find the Pharisee's speech to himself, verses 10 through 12. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank Thee. I am not as mother men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I possess. And so the scene here is this, that two men go up to the temple to pray. Perhaps, uh, as we'll see later, they are coming up the steps. I found actual picture of the steps of the temple. I think this is the south side of the temple there in Jerusalem. And so this is the actual uh, steps from the time of Christ there. So you can imagine, here's these people ascending the steps. They did it twice a day. They did it at 9 a.m. and they did it at 3 p.m. They followed a pattern as found in Leviticus chapter 1. You can check it out later. Morning and evening, first of all, they would have a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice at 9 o'clock. And then the priest would uh, light the incense and The incense would come up and that would be a symbol that God had accepted the sacrifice and the people now were supposed to pray and their prayers were like incense to God. He would then give a benediction where he would bless the people and then the people would stand. They would come up these steps. They would come into a courtyard and not far from the western wailing wall there. They would come in there and they would begin to pray. Many would stand there. Now, uh, these uh, people would come, some sincere, uh, some certainly not sincere. Others, mostly the biggest group, just people who were doing what others did. And if you were really devout, you would go twice a day. You would make sure you took your prayer shawl, you'd wear your little cap, and you would go there to pray. Not unlike uh, many religions, when they hear the uh, the bells, or when they hear the calling from the, uh, the, uh, the person who was, you know, uh, there in the, some big tower or something. And there they were. You see, wherever you go in some third world country, you'll have some kind of religious symbolisms. And you even see it in, here in America today. But uh, notice that it says in this passage that this particular man, this religious man, was standing. Certainly, nothing wrong with standing when we pray. Uh, I'm sure that many of the people did that when they would pray. But what what was strange was it says that he was standing and praying with himself. He was standing and praying with himself. Now, the prepositions here are very definitely weird. With himself. It could be translated standing by himself. And actually that makes a lot of sense because the name Pharisee, it's interesting the word Pharisee is actually a Hebrew word. And it's uh, transliterated over into the English language. The Hebrew word is the phariserios, and it is a word that just came over. But the word means separate. The very name Pharisee means separated one. I'm separate from other people. I separate from them. I am not like other people. And so really his very uh, office, his very religious uh, thought would lend to the thought that he was off by himself. So you're looking at these steps now. Everybody else is going up the steps. Maybe others are in the courtyard. Maybe they're at the, uh, uh, the wall there praying. But not the Pharisee. He's over by himself. And it says that he was praying with himself. Now, it, honestly, it could mean just inaudible. It could mean that he was just praying silently, uh, mumbling, moving his mouth, kind of like Hannah did in 1 Samuel chapter 1. But honestly, from the context, I think we get the idea that actually when it says he was praying with himself, he was praying a self-congratulatory prayer. In fact, uh, in these two verses, he refers to himself five times. (laughs) It says he was praying to himself. His very name, Pharisee, means he was separate. He was praying to himself. No, he was parading himself. (laughs) He basically stood and said, God, I just want to thank you for me. I just want to thank you for myself. God, I just want to thank you because I'm really an amazing person. Thank you, God, for me. Now, he does at least refer to God, but I get the sense that he really wasn't caring about God. It was just a word to him, kind of like those radical Muslim terrorists who will yell, God is great and then go out and blow up some innocent people. I I don't think they're really thinking about God and doing something anti-God. Here he was, this Pharisee, praying audibly. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying out loud, nothing wrong with praying while you're standing. There's nothing unscriptural about praying out loud. In fact, many times in Scripture, God said that we should pray with the mouth, and I think the, the ear gate helps us stay focused, and I think it's a blessing but when we pray audibly we must be careful not to do it to be heard of men in the uh, judaistic religion they do have some rules about praying out loud and we would never think about them much but they do and they say that the rabbis tell their people that you can pray out loud but you cannot shout just don't shout um, because they had times in history where these people praying would try to outshout each other Because that would make them more holy to God and more interested to God. And so there they were. So this man, he's standing there. He's got all of his religious garb on. He's probably separate from everybody else. He is talking out loud so everybody can hear what he's saying. And then, in general, he's just thanking God for himself and that he's not like other people. And then, of all things, he happens out of the corner of his eye, because he's making sure others are watching him. He sees a publican. A tax collector. He sees an IRS agent. He looks over there and he said, and certainly I am not like this man. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine the gall of such a prayer? He specifically looked at this person and says, I am not like him, an extortioner, which simply means thief. (laughs) Maybe he never went into somebody's house and stole something, but I'm sure there's more ways to steal than just money. Then he says this man i am not unjust it just means dishonest i'm not a dishonest person maybe he may not be dishonest in the way of the community but he's definitely dishonest with god about himself then it says i'm not an adulterer the word adulterer just covers a whole gamut of sexual sin and i'm sure he had in his mind all kinds of wicked things what going on but he said i'm not an adulterer well it may not out on the outside, but you know, God looks at the heart and he looks at the mind and uh, we must realize that God sees what we're thinking. Now, the fact is that group would be a very stinky group and he uh, looks at this guy and he says, I am not like him, but notice in this praying, he never asks one thing from God. He never acknowledges God that he needs his mercy or his grace or his righteousness. This is potty prayer at its worst. I'm telling you. And Then, of all things, he goes further. Not only does he condemn this particular, this fellow, then he begins to mark off before God how good he is. Look at verse 12. I fast twice a week. Now, that's an impressive feat, I will tell you. Uh, I'm not a big fan of fasting, although I think it is very necessary at times. In the biblical speaking, in the Judaistic religion, Uh, you would fast once a year. That was on the Day of Atonement to get ready for this wonderful yearly sacrifice. But there was never any uh, law that you had to to fast any other time. And uh, certainly not a bad thing to do. And there are times when we're so burdened with prayer and so concentrating that we forget to eat. We just concentrate on the Lord. But it says they fasted twice a week. Now, uh, Judaism was that they would fast on Monday and Thursday. They said it was because it's equidistant from the Sabbath day, but uh, Jewish historians say that they did those days, Monday and Thursday, because those were market days. and On those market days, they could stand and they would look very, very popular to people, very religious, and so they would put ashes on their face, they would look sad. And a a spiritual impression would certainly be made. That's why Jesus, of course, uh, said, when you fast, don't be like these people. Put on good clothes and don't appear to fast. They love to do it. They get in the marketplace and look so spiritual. So you're there, you're in the market, or you're, you're there in the temple and you're seeing them praying. And then further he says, I pay tithes of all that I get. Now when they tithe, I'm telling you what they tithe. I mean, if they got uh, ten grains, they would take one grain and give it to God. I mean, they were very meticulous. I remember back in the early days, I sometimes would see some of the amounts that were giving. I really don't know the particular amounts anymore. I see the the bottom line, but um, you know, sometimes I would always wonder, what in the world is forty-seven dollars and eighty-two cents? What kind of a gift was that? Well, I found out some people they they'd get they would tithe absolutely to the penny. And I thought, my goodness, it couldn't go up to $50. You know? I mean, but anyway, that's, uh, some folks, that's the way they are. They got that mindset, boy, I'm going to tithe to the exact penny. And let me just say, if that's your case, folks, on faith, go out for that extra dollar. Amen. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, and there's nothing wrong with tithing. Obviously, it's a good thing. But I will tell you, trying to buy your way to heaven, it's not going to work. I read recently, and I've noticed it in our own home. The U.S. News and World Report that many manufacturers are selling the same size packages as we've been accustomed to, such as in soap and things, but they're putting less of the product. For example, one particular soap brand always had a 61 ounce box. So now they have the same size box as they've always had, but they only put 55 ounces in it. Of course, it's a cost saving. Measure and uh, but they sell it for the same price, same size box, same price, but you get less of what you used to get. And if you'll notice, a lot of the things now, it, it's less full. Or some of those pills bottles I've gotten before, you see this big old giant bottle. I'm thinking, man, that's a that's a good deal for that. And then I open it up, and it's uh, 90% cotton in there, and uh, a couple pills out the bottom. <laughs> oh my goodness! But you know that's true with people as well. What? package we have on the outside doesn't always say what's on the inside. Sometimes we wrap ourselves in these beautiful packages, but and the fact is our inside is not what we say we are. And that's what this man was. He was, a, he was a box of beautiful packaging, but on the inside, he didn't have much to offer, but he thought he did for sure. Now the story changes and there's a dramatic shift in what Jesus says. Look at verse 13. And now we come to the third part of the story. The publican's supplication to God. And the publican, by the way, that's not Republican, that's a publican. This is a tax collector. He was an IRS agent. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He was standing afar off. Now, notice the difference between him and the Pharisee. The Pharisee was standing by himself but very close to the what he thought was the action he was very close to God why because he deserved to be there if anybody deserves to be close to God I do cuz I'm a religious person not this man he knew he was a traitor to God he was a traitor to his nation a publican a tax collector wasn't like an IRS agent here which are I'm sure good and responsible people but these People would actually get franchises where they would uh, be hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from their Jewish uh, countrymen. The only deal was they were able to, whatever they were able to extract in addition to what Rome wanted, they got to keep. And they would do so oftentimes by not very nice means. And so he knew he was a traitor to his nation. He was in fact a thief. He was a strong arm guy. He was a part of some gang. He was, he was just a bad guy. He had hurt his family. He had hurt his friends. And he felt like he had no right to draw near to God. And so he was away from God. He felt alienated from God. And he just said, I just don't, I don't deserve to be in the presence of God. And then to notice it says he would not, even so much as lift his eyes to heaven. Contrary to the Pharisee who felt like he was a peer with God and he was not afraid of looking God eye to eye. There's nothing wrong with looking up in prayer. There's nothing wrong with keeping our eyes open while we pray. I mean, that's not the point. The point is that this man was overwhelmed with shame, and it showed up in his posture. You could see that this man was a broken man. He felt so guilty. And Then notice also, it says that he was beating his chest. Again, there's no uh, rule that says we have to beat ourselves in order to show how Humble we are, or how broken we are. But it is uh, a symbol of extreme anguish. You'll find in Luke chapter 23, verse number 48 when Jesus was crucified, those at the bottom of the cross, it says they beat their chest in anguish. They were very broken. It was a powerful symbol, however, with what Jesus taught. For example, in Matthew 15 and verse 19, it says, For out of the heart, where the in the chest, is the heart. Out of the heart. And of course, really, our heart is not in our chest. Our physical heart is, but our spiritual heart really is just who we are. It's part of our spirit. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, faults, witnesses, and blasphemies. Those who say, I didn't mean it. No, tragically we do. It comes from a wicked heart. But this man was understanding, my heart is bad my heart is bad. He was humbled. And notice what he said. He said, God. God. Now, he was not like the Pharisee who threw around the God name and really didn't mean it. No, this man meant it. He was applying himself to God. And then he said, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, I want you to notice the brevity of this prayer, only six words. Only six words compared to the 29 words of the Pharisee the pharisee was so proud of himself this whole sinner only six words now i don't think we six words or we have to pray short to please god or we have to pray long to please god it's not really how long we pray it's the heart that we pray with but notice what he does he says god it's a greek word theos which we get our word theology from he's just saying god of everything supreme ruler theos god he was believing that God was over everything. He said, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now that's a powerful thing to say, I'm a sinner. He didn't say, I've sinned. He said, I'm a sinner. Now it's hard to get people to say, I'm a sinner. I've heard people say, I've lied before. Oh, that means you're a liar. Oh, I'm not a liar. Well, have you lied? Yeah, I've lied you're a liar then. I'm not a liar. No, I have lied, but I'm not a liar. And that's it's hard to get people to say I am a sinner because then that's just really pointing to the really the nature of their character. But this man wasn't afraid. He was saying, "God, I'm a sinner." He didn't just say, "Yeah, I've done a few bad things." He said, "I am a sinner." And notice that little preposition a. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, it could be translated the sinner. He was basically saying, I am the sinner of sinners. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Timothy chapter one, even after years of being saved, he said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I'm the sinner. This man said, I am the sinner. He wasn't like we often do and say, well, yeah, I've done wrong, but he was saying, God, you see everything. You're the great God. I ask you to be merciful to me, the sinner. I just not have sinned. I'm a sinner. And then he said, "Be merciful to me." Now, when we think of the word mercy, we typically think nice. Be nice to somebody. Have mercy. And that is certainly a a way to define mercy. But that's not what this word is. This word is not the word be nice. Actually, it is the same word as the word propitiation. Now, that's a big old English word there, but we find it in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 2, but it's a derivative from the same word. It means covering. It means mercy seat. It means atonement. So here was this man who had obviously a biblical background, of course, being in the Jewish tradition, Public there and listening to all the Pharisees speak, and he kind of knew about the Bible, but he had a sense of what God was saying. And all of a sudden, it came—it came to his mind. All those sacrifices—why did they sacrifice? It was an atonement. It was a blood sacrifice. It was the fact that God was covering, and that's what the word is here. He was saying, "God, be my atonement." Because I've sinned so much, I want you to cover all of my sins by your grace and by your mercy. He believed the Bible. The Bible said, the soul that sinneth, it must die. All of a sudden, all the scripture made sense to him. Isaiah 53 and verse 5, he was wounded for my transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. With his stripes, we are healed. And so this man was claiming the atonement of Jesus as his sacrifice. And it was an amazing moment. Here he is, the publican's supplication to God, pleading the blood atonement. This guy is broken. He, is, uh, getting a, he, he has an understanding of what it takes to go to heaven. Somebody has to pay for my sin. And then verse 14, we find the final part, and really this is the clincher. This is the most powerful verse of all and we find the publican's support from God. We find, first of all, the pastor's synopsis to everyone. Number two, the Pharisee's speech to himself. Number three, the publican's supplication to God. And finally, the publican gets a thumbs up from God. Verse 14, the most stunning verse, perhaps in the whole New Testament, I tell you. Now, why did Jesus say such a dramatic statement I tell you, because he was pulling away from the truth that they had been hearing. Here he gives his upside down truth, which is real truth, genuine truth. I tell you, now I know the Pharisees will tell you this. I know culture will tell you this. I know your aunt, Mark would tell you this. And I know Papa would tell you this. But I tell you the truth. Listen to me. I'm coming soon. I'm going to split the clouds wide open. I'm coming. Are you ready? I tell you, your religion alone is not going to take care of you. You can be a wicked person and yet pray this amazing prayer and go to heaven. I tell you, I tell you, this man, can you see Jesus boldly? This man, this man went down to his house justified. He went back to his house justified. It's a legal term, as if God took the gavel and slammed it on the bench and said, this man is not guilty, declared not guilty, but more than that, not only not guilty, the judge said the court now puts $1 billion to this man's account for all the bad. His life is now gone, and he has been given all this good. This man went down to his house justified, never ever to have to face that sin again. People were astounded. What? Are you kidding me? All the people he extorted, all the wickedness, I mean, this guy was an adulterer, yep, all gone. And Then you're telling me that he has all this righteousness, yep, be ye holy as I am holy. How can I be holy? You have to have the holiness of God placed on your account. That is the atonement. That is this atonement placed on my account. That's what God said He would do. Then it says here, I tell you this. How can that be? And then He brings the conclusion. He said, everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The word exalted there is just a synonym for salvation. He said, everyone that saves himself will find out that it's not going to work. And that, my friend, is the problem with America. And that's the problem with every country in the world. People trying to exalt themselves, save themselves. In India, they try to save themselves. They bathe themselves in the holy water. In Italy, they go before the Pope and make sure that the Pope grants them a blessing and they confess their sins. You go to Thailand or Southeast Asia or these Asian countries and they give their fruits and they light incense to Buddha. They want to make sure that they save themselves, exalt themselves. In America, people will go to church or they'll give tithes or they'll say certain words because they try to save themselves. Jesus said, it never works. Nobody can exalt himself. Nobody can save himself. You would say, well, how is that possible? This Pharisee spent all of his life doing all these good things, and he's not going to go to heaven? Nope. Because he tried to save himself, and if you try to save yourself, it's not going to work. In fact, he says very clearly, you'll be abased. Now, wouldn't that be a clinker? I mean, you spend your whole life trying to just uh, you know, impress God, and no, nope, it doesn't work. You say, well, how, can it, how does it work? Look at the last part. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. He that humbleth himself. He that was not even willing to look up. The Pharisee was eye to eye with God. Look at me, God. Look at me. Five times in those verses, I'm basically an amazing person. I deserve to go to heaven. I'm really righteous. I'm such an amazing person. The other fellow wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He said, Oh God, be merciful. The sinner, the most sinful person that's ever lived. God, that's me. I'm the sinner. Oh God. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes. God, I need you. Be my atonement. Be merciful to me. Put the blood on my account. Jesus said, This man found out. That it's not self righteousness that gets us to heaven, it's Savior righteousness. And that's the two ways either self righteousness or Savior righteousness. Self righteousness leads to hell, Savior righteousness leads to heaven. It's an amazing thing about, I read the other day a, a medical a little article. I love, I've always had a real interest in medical things. And They were showing the effect that placebos, sugar pills, have on people. Now You would think that being just a sugar pill, oftentimes they'll give a placebo in different studies to kind of see the effectiveness of some new drug they're testing. But in fact, placebos often work, even though they're nothing more than a little bit of sugar, they don't help. (laughs) They even hurt, I guess, but there they are. These people take these little pills, these little sugar pills and yet they're helped by it. How is it? Well, they've done some research and found that when you tell people that this is good medicine, it actually helps them, their mind, their emotions, and it helps, you know, cure a lot of times sickness that's maybe brought on by stress or whatever. But uh, it actually makes them better, but it's only temporary. A placebo is only temporary. Because it's not founded on anything that's real, nothing that organically changes the body or the blood or does something to the person's sugar pills, just temporary relief. As I read that, I realized, you know, that's just like religion. That's just like whether it be a Baptist or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or whatever the case, sugar pills making us feel temporarily okay because I've done this, or I've kneeled, or I've lit a candle, or I've put some incense, or I've jumped in some water, or I've done this. All placebos, just sugar peels, do nothing to really change, and it's only temporarily effective. Self-righteousness virtues versus Savior-righteousness. Have you ever said in your life, like this publican, Oh, God, God, be merciful. Put the atonement, the blood atonement on my account because I am the sinner. I've not just sinned. I'm a sinner. And if you never have, friend, that that is the real medicine and Dr. Jesus has given it to us. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Thank God for the precious blood of Jesus Christ.